There we go. Hey, here's what we're going to do, church family, as we start off tonight. mentioned several weeks ago, we're going to at least make sure every Wednesday night we spend some time praying for a people group that uh, is unreached in our world. And so tonight we are praying for the Urmori. Wow, that's a very bad black. Hang on. There we go. The Ormori People Group, the O-R-M-U-R-I, the Ormori People Group, uh, there are 3,500 uh, men, women, children who make up the Ormori People Group. They live in, uh, in southeastern Afghanistan, south of Kabul, on the border of Pakistan. Uh, the reality of the world they live in is there is not a single known believer amongst them as a people group. They live in a country uh, which we are certainly familiar with and, and know that in the last uh, several years has fallen back into governance by uh, the Taliban, who makes it completely and totally illegal uh, for them to uh, look at anything spiritually other than uh, Islam. They reside in a remote region. Now, Unlike some unreached people groups, there are some audio and visual resources, including the Jesus film in their language, provided that they have internet access to get to it or a person who shares it with them and they are not subsequently caught by the Taliban. So here's what we want to pray tonight, real simple, uh, and it's similar to what we will always pray. One, we want to pray that uh, God would draw their hearts uh, to salvation, that there would be a work of God in moving and stirring their hearts, that they would see the brokenness and lostness of their ways and beliefs. Uh, one of the things that is common, this may sound strange for uh, if, you're not, if, if you've not been engaged a lot in, in how uh, the Lord seems to be moving among Muslims, uh, drawing Muslims to Christ around the world, one of the things that asks us to pray for, so pray that the Lord would, would be working in their lives, drawing their hearts, that they would be responsive to the Lord. But one of the things is to pray that specifically those whom are responsive, that the Lord would give them dreams and visions which sounds somewhat maybe strange because of how that can be perverted and twisted in our Western culture, but that's high, in Islam, it is highly respected for God to speak through dreams and visions. And I can give you story after story after story of ways that Jesus has truly communicated to Muslims who have then gone and sought out what the man in white in their dream told them and have come to faith in Christ. So we want to pray that, uh, that, those, that, that those that the Lord would speak clearly to them. Uh, we want to pray that they uh, would have a, a way to easily access uh, the Jesus film and hear the gospel. And then ultimately, we want to pray that God would raise up laborers for the harvest who would go amongst the Amori and share the gospel, and that there would be a movement of God amongst them where we would see, uh, where we would see members of the Umari people come to faith in Christ. So if you would, just someone at your table, if y'all would bow in prayer, and if someone would, would step up to pray aloud for them, and then as I sense uh, our time of prayer waning, I will pray us into our time of study. Father, we come tonight and we praise you that there is not a single man, woman, boy, or girl uh, amongst the Umuri people um, who you did not fearfully and wonderfully create in their mother's womb since the beginning of their people. Tracing all the way back, Lord, we know to, to Noah and then ultimately to Adam and Eve. Um, there is not a one of them that is not precious to your heart. Jesus, there is not a one of them that your word is not clear that you paid their price on the cross for. 
And um, Father, we, we sit here tonight thousands of miles away with a very real possibility in this world of never, ever seeing a single individual from the Umori people. But Lord, we pray, one, that you would raise up brothers and sisters, whether it be from amongst us or from amongst other churches, from anywhere in this world, that you would raise up laborers to send to the Amori people to be able to clearly proclaim and articulate Jesus, your gospel message to them. Lord, we ask tonight that you would open doors uh, to the Amori people to be able, the resources that are in their language, um, uh, individual believers, that you would open doors for them to be able to hear and to, and to, to um, wrestle with and to uh, discover the truth of your gospel. Father, however you would stir them, Holy Spirit, whatever ways you would convict them, Father, whatever ways you would reveal yourself, whether that be through verbal proclamation, whether that be through things like the Jesus film, whether that be through dreams and visions, Lord, whatever it may be, we ask that they would be humble in heart to see and to hear. Lord, that the lies of the enemy that bind them from a, from a religious perspective, from a government perspective, that you would rend those lies, that you would open their hearts, and that there would be a turning of Amori people to you in salvation, Lord. We ask this in your name, Jesus. And Father, as we open up your word tonight, may you guide us. Lord, we just delight you're here. And Father, we want to be a church that you don't have to tell that you're standing at the door knocking because we're going out of our out of out living out our business unaware that you're not even in the room. Father, we we with joy open the door. Jesus, you are welcome here. May our hearts be truly be reflective of that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, we come. Uh, we're going to pick back up uh, where we've where we've been in Revelation. And uh, depending on, I'll just echo when I see the clock, uh, the clock hit the double fives. I'm just going to dive bomb us down, and uh, it could end on a great note or it could end on a super confusing note. Especially because the further we are now progressing into Revelation, we get into the stuff that uh, gets a little, little more wild and you, you start to get uh, further diversity of opinion based on, in a lot of ways, uh, some foundational questions we've, we've already, uh, already looked at. Um, I'm going to remind, remind all of us, when it comes to Revelation, there's kind of a series of questions that you that you walk down, uh, that ultimately in nearly any, any pastor you're going to hear preach, any uh, commentator you're going to read, essentially ways that they are going to interpret a lot of things are going to come down to where they land on these, these questions. The first, the first question, and, and we looked at, and I'm just doing this for reminders, we've seen this, so I'm just bringing it back, is, is the question of how, how do we, how do we just view Revelation? And I'll remind you that there's essentially four basic ways that, uh, that historically, theologically, people look at the book of Revelation and, uh, and approach it with. Uh, one uh, would, be, um, would be the idea, an, an idealist view is what we'd call it, an idealist view, uh, which looks at the book of Revelation basically through the lens of allegory. There's an allegory here that's being made. It's not, we're not talking about specific historical events. We're not talking about stuff past. We're not talking about stuff future. It's allegorical. It's symbolical. Uh, how, how then do we, do we apply that into our, under, our understanding? The idealist view, that's one. You've got the preterist view, which the idea is past, which is going to look at the book of Revelation as describing real historical events, nearly all of which have already happened. So we're not looking at things that have yet to happen other than maybe the actual return of, of Christ, but we're going to look at things that happened and were fulfilled by 70 AD and the destruction of the temple and the driving out of the Jews from uh, the Holy Land by the Romans. There is what's called, uh, there is what's called, and I guess I'll, I'll write these out. Not that all of you in the back can see my great handwriting. 
there is what's called the, uh, the historicist view, uh, which is, is going to be the idea uh, that, uh, that, that the book of Revelation is, is, is symbolic in many ways, and it's, it's looking at uh, it's looking at the whole, it's, it's applicable and looking at and it's pulling imagery and, and speaking of things that are going to take place through the entire history of the, uh, of the church. And then you've got what, and, and I'm not going to linger here long, but then you've got what uh, nearly all of us, uh, I'm assuming, would uh, ascribe to and certainly what, uh, if you've grown up in the Baptist church, you're going to be most common with, which is the futurist view meaning that the majority, not all of the book of Revelation is future. I, I, we walk through the seven letters on Sunday mornings, and I'm not walking through them as if each letter is representative of one of the seven ages of the church. No, we're, we're looking at real literal churches that really existed in history that, that existed 1,900 years ago. But we also acknowledge that the bulk of the book of Revelation is future it hadn't happened. It's things, it's describing events that have yet to come to pass. And certainly there is imagery and symbolism, but it's describing real literal events as well that have yet to come to pass. This is the futurist position. And, and this is kind of the starting ground. How do we view the book of Revelation? Is, is it something that is only symbolic? Is it something that is describing events that ha- have been and are and will take place? Historicist, is it something that's all past or is it describing what is yet to come, and obviously that's where that's where I fall. That's where most of you, uh, if you're, that's where most of the pastors. Again, if you've grown up in Baptist world, that's most of what you're going to know is futurist view. And I feel very comfortable, by the way, biblically, that the Book of Revelation is primarily referring to that which is yet to come. Uh, this is not a struggle for me, by the way, interpretively. But the first question is how? How do you view it? The second question is when you come into come into this way. Remember, there's two other questions that then that then uh, impact how we walk through Revelation. The question is the question of the question of the millennium, the millennium kingdom, the millennial kingdom. What do you do with that statement there in Revelation 19 that describes Christ reigning for a thousand years? Uh, what do you do with that? Is, is, is it is when we when we look at the return of Christ, do we take a post-millennial approach, which means after the millennial kingdom, Jesus returns? This would be a position describing uh, uh, that that would that would state that the the millennial kingdom is already something or is currently something. It's not a literal thousand years. It's something that Christ returns afterward. There's the amillennial approach, which says the thousand years, it's, it's, just, it's just symbolic. There is, there is no millennial kingdom. And then there is what we call the premillennial position. And there's different variations of it, but the premillennial position essentially is that there is a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on this earth before which is the second coming in Christ's return, that Christ's return is what establishes this literal thousand years of the millennium. That's, uh, again, most of you, especially if you've, you got a, uh, um, Colin, help me out here because my brain is on baby mode where I've literally not had more than four hours of sleep in three weeks. Uh, Ryrie Study Bible or Schofield Study Bible? Schofield. Schofield Study Bible. Part of, part of this view being really big is the Schofield held this, put together a study Bible with all of his commentary notes, and that was one of the most best-selling Bibles of the early 20th century. Boom, you've got a lot of people that fall there. If you've read Left Behind, things like that, uh, all of that is going to fall in the, the pre-millennial camp. It's where I fall. It's where I, 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 I land. The next question is going to be, We've talked about this. It's going to be the question of the rapture. And specifically, when does the rapture happen? Now, notice the question is not, follow this. We land in the futurist. We believe there's a a literal millennial kingdom that Jesus returns beforehand. The question now at the rapture is not, is there a rapture? There is a rapture. Jesus is coming for his church one way or the other. There is a rapture. The question is, does that rapture happen before the seven years of tribulation, in the middle of the seven years of tribulation, somewhere in between the middle and the end of the tribulation, or the end of the tribulation? Hence the term pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib. That's the question 
and we'll come to it at some point. It's not tonight, but I'll, I'll show you why this matters for tonight. That's the question that I could do a really good job and convince you of any one of the four of, I feel pretty sure, because I'll just flood you with enough information biblically to, to make you go, well, oh my goodness, well, that has to be it. And then I'll make you think, well, that's wrong. That has... Now, that said, some people get really dicey. No, it's absolutely this. I respect that, but I'm just trying to be intellectually honest with how we should interpret Scripture and some of the challenges that are there, these are going to be the, the framework that people then approach passages like what we're going to begin to see tonight with these, the answers to these questions are going to be what drives a lot of that understanding. So you'll see what I mean here in a second. Turn with me, Revelation chapter 10, Revelation chapter 10. And for the record, I'm probably not going to solve half your questions tonight, only because the further I dig into the weeds on some of this, I come up with 50 more questions than I knew I had to. So, but I will help us at least understand what is the point and how should we apply it, what are the, the things out there. So Revelation chapter 10, now remember the lead up to this, we've, we've gotten into the trumpet judgments. These trumpet judgments, there's seven angels, there's seven trumpets. Chapter 9 ends with the fifth and sixth trumpet blasting. Uh, and, and remember, you get through all of, in these trumpet judgments, we've seen the seals opened, we've seen the trumpet judgments, we have seen death and destruction on a, uh, both a uh, death and destruction of, of humankind, death and destruction of the natural world. We have seen death and destruction of, a, of an unparalleled amount. We've seen, uh, we've seen at first a quarter of humanity die, then a third of humanity die. We've seen a third of the water uh, gone. We've seen a third of the sea life gone. We've seen a third of the grass gone. Uh, by the way, did anybody go out uh, whenever that was that two weekends ago, the whole like partial eclipse thing where it looks a little bit weird outside? Okay, I couldn't help but think that, man, what would it be like if you knocked out a third of the sun's light, which knocks out a third of the moon's light, which, you know, you start thinking things. There, there's going to be destruction and chaos on a level unforeseen in, in human history. And remember how chapter 9 ends. It ends with this statement. It ends with this statement that the rest of mankind who were not killed, killed by these plagues, and di they did not repent of the work of their hands so as to not worship demons and the idols of gold, silver, and brass, and of stone, and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their moralities, nor of their thefts. So here you have on an unparalleled scale things that you would think would wake people up. 9-11 happened. And the next several Sundays, more people went to church in America than have been in years because typically, now obviously it didn't last, but typically there's this pattern. When bad stuff happens, it causes a, 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 at least a, a reaching out. Okay, well, bad stuff is happening on a scale un, unparalleled, and no one's doing anything. They're just even more hunkered down in their sin. This is the reality of the depravity of man's sin. And so on, off of that, all of a sudden, we see another little reprieve. We're not yet to the seventh trumpet. We've got to see two things happen first in chapters 10 and 11, and then we'll get to the seventh trumpet. So this is what it says. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head. His face was like that of the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven pearls of thunder have spoken and do not write them down. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted his right hand to heaven. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound the trumpet, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets." So a couple things you've got going on. 
Uh, one, let's tackle, tackle this not in, in exactly the order it comes there in the text, but one, you've got uh, this angel, this angel character comes in, we'll talk about him in a second, but you've got all of a sudden seven peals of thunder that when they go off, there is clearly something intelligible and understandable that is heard because John proceeds to write it down as he's been writing everything else down. And a voice out of heaven, the voice of God says, nope, hold up, don't write that down, seal it up, that's not for anybody to know. You're going to say, well, pastor, what did he hear? I don't know. God said, seal it up. And anybody who tells you they know, they're lying through their teeth because God sealed it up. It's not recorded there. We can take some guesses. Personally think guesses would be fruitless. The reason I point it out is to say this. Realize when it comes to God's plan to end human history and, to re- and Jesus to return and to inaugur- inaugurate uh, the new heaven. When, when all of this happens, realize all of God's plans, that there are aspects to it God hasn't even put in his word. So think about how confusing it is for some of us to try to figure out what God has put in his word about it and realize he hadn't even put everything in his word about it which is why I will always say we ought to all be very, very humble when it comes to understanding what Scripture says about the return of Jesus. Firmly plan on what is clear. You know what's clear? Jesus coming back. You know what's clear? Sinners will face judgment for their sin. You know what's clear? Those of us in Christ will be preserved. There are things that are clear, and we should never, we should be humbly, humbly secure on those things. But if the rapture's happening prior to the seven years of tribulation, in the middle of tribulation, after the tribulation, if, you know, if, the, if, the, if, if the judgments are all chronologically subsequent or if there's interconnectedness, we need to have a little bit of humility because there's some things God just doesn't completely tell all of us. So it's a good reminder. There are things about the end times that John saw and heard that he wasn't allowed to record, and we have a hard enough time with what he was allowed to record. So that's one. Two. You have this character, another strong angel coming down out of heaven, a mighty angel. Now, there, there's, and I'm just going to say, there, there's, there's some debate here. Is this a, a, like a more mightier, we know there's different kinds of angels, so is this a more mightier angel? Or is, is this, for some reason, we're using the term angel to refer to Jesus? You say, well, why do you say that, Pastor? Well, look at the description this is a mighty angel, not an angel. That's not a common phrase. It's referencing a, a great strength this individual carries. Clothed with the cloud, that's the idea of glory in a cloud. Rainbow upon his head, covenant of faithfulness. Face like the sun, radiating glory. Feet like pillars of fire. We've seen that language. That's Jesus in Revelation 1. Hand is a little book. He, his voice is like a lion when, when he cries out. And even the, uh, the uh, raising hand and, and swearing by heaven, you go, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Well, remember, uh, in Deuteronomy, God says he swears by himself. And then there's the character at the end of Daniel who's standing, who's over the river, Daniel 10, 11, and 12. And in Daniel, it seems very likely that character is Christ. Now, you're going to go, wow, pastor, that's crazy. So this is angels, Jesus. No. What I'm telling you is there's really healthy debate both ways. A lot of those characteristics, it's hard for me to look at and go, why on earth would an angel be described that way? Because no, those are literally characteristics of Jesus. At the same time, the language is another angel. Well, Jesus is not another angel. So you go, wow, I, I'm just letting you know what's there, letting you know that there's, letting you know here's the core point. You have some kind of super powerful being who all of a sudden enters the picture in between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, when this being enters the picture, this being's entrance causes seven pills of thunder to speak their words, which we know nothing of what they said. And then he gives a pronouncement. And the pronouncement is that there will be no more delay. John has seen all of what's taken place to this point. And then this, this angel says, no more delay. When the seventh trumpet, when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, that will be the end. That will be the end. We are on the precipice of how everything's going to end up. Now, just to tell you, as I've looked through and studied stuff, likely, uh, I, I don't think this being probably is Jesus based on some of the ways 
those same uh, terminology for angel is used throughout the rest of Revelation. But I don't want, also want to be intellectually honest enough to tell you there is some healthy room for debate there. And it is hard to fully grasp the nature of this specific being because some of those describers uh, aren't describers that are typically used for another angel but are used for Jesus. And so it very well could be, uh, could be Jesus, could be another angel. The central point is what the angel, what this messenger announces, which is when the seventh trumpet goes off, the mystery of God, which has been proclaimed through the prophets, it's all going to be clear. Every, every last, right? The mystery of God, we've seen that terminology in the gospel. People missed in the old, they, they didn't know, they somehow missed what seems clear now in the Old Testament. They missed that, that there would be a sacrifice, uh, 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 that, that God would come in flesh, that, that, that the God-man would die on the cross for our sins, that all of these things that, that were counter to what they were looking for were called the mystery of the gospel. Well, beyond the mystery, there's, there's the mystery of all of history. And what he says is, that mystery, everything will be fully and completely seen when the angel blasts his trumpet. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, the one that, the one that said, don't write those words down, I heard again. So here's the voice of God. And this is what he says, go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and the land. By the way, uh, the, the best kind of idea for standing on the sea and land is that what this angel is proclaiming, what is, is it's binding on the whole world, sea and land, right? That's how we look at the world, sea and land, ocean land. It's binding on the whole world. The whole earth is bound by it. So he went to the angel and, and, and telling him to give me the book. And he said, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Now, that is not a reference for having an infant who both enjoys milk and has current gas problems. That would be our household, and that's not what it's referring to. It's trying to insert a little levity there. What he is saying, he says, take and eat. It's going to be bitter to your stomach, sweet to your mouth. And so John says, I took the little book of the angel's hand and I ate it. And in my mouth, it was sweet as honey. When I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So here's the word of the Lord on a book. He's told, eat the book or take the word, receive the word. And as you, John, submit and receive this word, as you ingest it, you're going to have a twofold reaction. It's going to be sweet to the taste. There's going to be a joy and a sweetness to it. Equally, there will be a bitterness you experience. Now, it's strange language. And it's not the first time language like that has ever been used. Uh, if you flip back, and you're welcome to do so, but uh, into the book of Ezekiel, when you flip back to Ezekiel and you look at God's calling of Ezekiel, in the first few chapters, in Ezekiel chapter 2, in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 8, God speaking, he says, Now you, son of man, talking to Ezekiel, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house, talking about the, the house of Judah, the house of Israel. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. Remember that, that word that I just read in Revelation, book, is also translated scroll. So scroll was in it. He spread it out in front of me. It was written on the front and on the back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe, sorrowful things. Then God said to me, son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll. Go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, he fed me this scroll, he said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll, which I am giving you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Now, catch there, sweet as honey in my mouth, it, God said, eat it and, and feed your stomach, fill your body. Well, what is he filling his body with? A scroll, what's what? Mourning, woe, and lamentation, things that are bitter, then God said to me, verse 4, Son of man, go to the house of Israel, speak with my words to them, for you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel, nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language whose words you cannot understand. But I have sent you to them who should listen to you, yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. And then he goes on to describe how he will make secure Ezekiel. 
So this kind of language, speaking about the prophetic word of God, and when I say prophetic word of God, I don't mean the, the predictive word, like eat this word and you'll tell who's going to win, the Rangers or the Diamondbacks. That's not prophecy what we're talking What he's saying is, here is God's word, God's will to these people in this moment, in this time, and it's typically a, a message of repentance, a call to repentance. And you see a similarity. And, what, and by the way, what is John charged with once he takes and eats it? Step back up, buddy. You're getting called back in. Come out of retirement. You're gonna, you, there's more for you to go prophesy. There's more for you to go share. So, so what, what all is there? Well, it's interesting, one, that John, who so far has been a, um, a watcher of everything that has happened, is now brought into what is happening that there is a, a sense of a re-upping of call for John. By the way, remember how old is John when he's writing this? He's in his 80s. So I'll just remind all of us, especially uh, as the fact that we are in older age church, I don't care what age you are, you don't get to quit ministry. Until God takes you home, God has ministry he expects to do in you and through you. And so don't you dare ever listen to the lies of the enemy, regardless of how old or young you are, that God just doesn't have anything else to do with you. You're just languishing this side of heaven. That's a lie of Satan. And if we want to be a church that holds fast to every word of Jesus and is found faithful like the Philadelphian church, it means I don't care if you're five or if you're 95, you need to faithfully live out the call of God on your life because God's not through with you until he takes you home. And technically, he's not through with you then. It's just going to change what he's going to do in you and through you. But part of what that looks like, it's not just, it's not just recalling John there, but do you notice the language? Here's, here's, the word of the, here's the words of the scroll. Eat it. Now, just, I mean, the, the, language, the, the, the language is super visible for us. All right? You, you don't... Um, to truly eat something, you can't eat something halfway, right? Because if you say, well, I, you know, I, can, I can take a bite of something, put it in my mouth, chew on it, see if I like it, and spit it back out. Well, that's not eating it. That's just chewing it and spitting it out. To eat something, you have to fully put it in your mouth. Your mouth has to chew it. Your body has to engage with it. And then you swallow it, and it goes into the very core of your body where it is processed and brought out. To say eat of the word means you have to take all of what is said, and you have to embrace all of it. You don't get to take it in and chew on some of it and decide, ooh, those Jesus, Jesus loves me. Ooh, I really like that. We'll swallow some of that. But mm, that thing in my life, uh, that pride that's really sinful, I don't really like that Jesus calls that. We'll spit that back out like watermelon seed. Now you eat all of it. And notice the language. Why is eating, why is eating the word of God, why is it sweet to the taste and bitter to the stomach? Because in this world, that's what it, if you and I really embrace the word of God completely and wholeheartedly, it is sweet to the taste. It's the word of life. It tells us this grand story that you and I are born unaware of, in some ways, of the fact that we're born in active hostility and, and rebellion against the God of the universe. I mean, one, it's terrifying to know that we're against him, and then to realize that when you're born, uh, you're not fully aware you're against him because you're so deep in your own depravity. And that this God who has every right to come obliterate all of those who oppose him, far from obliterating all who oppose him, as the triune God acted, the Father with perfect love for the Son sent his Son into this world who, who would so identify with humanity that he would not just appear one day but would go through the process of being born, which having just experienced that for the second time, let me just remind and refresh those of you who haven't been around someone being born lately, you don't want to go back and do that again. None of us would go, oh, you know what sounds like a great idea? Let's de-age myself into mom's womb and let's go through all of that knowing full well what it involves, right? When you're born, you and I don't have a clue. We don't remember any of it. God, who knows how it's all involved, he chose to come that way. He chose to go through needing and depending upon his mother's milk to grow, to have to learn. I mean, just I, and I, I want to be careful. 
some of this is just vivid because it's just constant reminders right now, right? New, new baby born, are they gonna know, are they gonna know how, to, how to latch and how to, how to are they, there's all these hard things that come with it. He's gonna have to learn how to be potty trained, how to walk. You and I all know babies when they're trying to figure out to walk, it, it doesn't just go from no walking to walking. There's falling, there's crashes, there's tone, and those are necessary to learn how to walk, to build the strength. I'm not going on with all that, but, but that's just nothing compared to the fact that Jesus would come and live and grow in this world completely righteous in a world that's completely unrighteous. That he would live the life we felt, that this grand story that he would go to the cross, that he would become our sin, our rebellion, and he would bear uh, the, the actual cost of my rebellion, which is eternal hell. And he would take it on all for the joy set before him because he loves me. That word is sweet. The word of being able to have peace with God, having been justified by faith through Christ Jesus. That is sweet. The word which tells me that my God will protect and preserve me through whatever trial, that is a sweet word. The word that says, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. I'm with you always when there is peace. I'm with you always when World War III is about to happen. I'm with you always at the joy of the birth of your child. I'm with you always at the diagnosis of cancer. I am with you always. That word is sweet. But adhering to all of that word in a world that hates Jesus is also bitter. Not because the word is bitter, but because for you and I to embrace all of the word of God, to stand where Jesus stands, means we're going to stand where he stands on issues the world doesn't like. It also means we're going to do what he says, which is to open our mouths and speak his truth to a world that doesn't like it. And just like he told Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I'm not sending you to a people who has no clue what you're talking about and you're going to have a language barrier. I'm sending you to your own people and they're not going to pay attention to you at all. I'll put it, I can't imagine. Let's say pastors were called in a different way and I got called by some state exec and said, hey, we're going to call you to pastor this church. Now, by the way, they're never going to listen to a word you say. And we're going to leave you there your whole life. Nobody wants that job. That's precisely the job of a prophet. So there is a bitterness to when we fully and totally embrace what the Word of God says. There's a bitterness because the Word of God's going to convict us of our own sin. And if you fight that conviction, you're going to sense a lot of dissatisfaction and disfellowship and pain and anguish. There's a, a bitterness because it's going to convict the world of their sin, and there's, it's going to just put you in tough spots. Yet the call remains the same for all of us, we have to eat the full weight of God at his word. We don't get the option to go through the, the Luby's line of God's word and go, I like some of that and I like some of that, but I'm gonna hold off on some of that. We eat what it says, how it says it, where it says it, why it says it. Because he said it. And he is saying it. And his word won't fail to come to pass. And I mentioned this Sunday, that, that means things that probably for us, just if we were to use um, descriptors the world would probably view us with, we'd be, oh, they're, they're a conservative, historically orthodox, doctrinally church. Might get mean with man. Some of them go, oh, well, they're bigots. Well, they're... There's things that the, the kind of the, the, the stereotype of a church we are, there's things that are going to be obvious to, to us on that. Objective truth. Of course there's objective truth and absolute truth. That's obviously we've got, we can't say stuff is relative. We've got to stand on absolute truth because Jesus is truth and he is absolute and objective. Morality, right or wrong. We know there's absolute morality. We know there's right or wrong. Sexuality, uh, euthanasia, abortion, all these different ethical issues we can come through. We've got to stand, there's things that are obvious to us as church people, for lack of a better term. 
And we've got to be faithful to stand there. And, and again, as I said Sunday, not just to stand there what it is, but also how God stands there. Which means that we don't speak the truth in abject hatred and anger and animosity. We speak the truth. If, if we're really supposed to be like Christ, how does Christ love this world? He loves this world. So there should be a brokenness, a sorrow, a prayerfulness, a desire to speak the truth in such a way that if a lost person rejects what I say, it is in no way because I gave him reason for offense, but because the word of God is simply offensive to his nature. But we've got to stand on those things. We also have to stand on the stuff that may not be as easy for us to see. One of the challenges I think we face today, and it's not new, it is easy to take the principle and tie it to the practice. Let me give you an example. The principle is we should disciple our children. That's a, man, that's a, that's a biblical command. So as a church, we need, to, we need to have a ministry that seeks to disciple, to teach our children about Jesus, to, to lead children to come to faith in Christ, to disciple them. That's a principle. That's an unchanging truth that's been true in the church for the last 2,000 years, and it'll be true until the Lord comes back. There's a lot of different ways we can practice doing that. We can do it in small groups. We can do it in Sunday school. We can do it through VBS. We can do it through sports camp. We can do it through art camp. We can do it through children's camp. We can do it through backyard Bible clubs. We can do it, but it's very easy for us to go, well, if we don't do it this specific way, then, then we're not doing it. Listen, every single thing I named you, some of us are like, great, I love all of them, they're great. Some of us are like, mm, that's my thing, and, if, and that's like, if you don't do it this way, you're not doing it God's way. I got news for all of us. If you rewind the clock 150 years and you go to a Southern Baptist church, you won't see a single one of those things done. But it's easy for us to make, and especially in a day and age where, this is just how I feel as a younger person. I feel like the word change is now a dirty word everywhere. To be honest, because, because in, socially in our country, there's a lot of progressive stuff trying to change, and the reaction is, well, we're not going to capitulate on that. But then all of a sudden, any kind of change is bad. And I, and I said this, and I'm not, and please understand, I'm not hinting at anything. I'm burdened by things I see around me in churches. And I realize that we as a church are not made of anything special and distinct from any other church. And so if we're not willing to embrace, so I do, I watch churches who are, I'll give you, I'll give you a great example. There is a really well-known, large, prominent, cutting-edge church for the last hundred years that for 40 years, they don't call it an Easter pageant, but that's, it's, a, it's, it's a super mega, hundred, several hundred thousand dollar budget Easter performance their church does. That has seen thousands of people come to faith in Christ from the community. And they decided to stop it in 2019 when 30,000 people came to see it. You go, oh my goodness, you can't cut that. 30,000 people came to see it. Well, here's what you don't know. What you don't know is the church was five years away from being in so much debt financially, they would cease to be able to exist as a church. So could they justify spending $400,000 on a one-time performance? What you also don't know is that as the pastors walked outside, they realized that those 30,000 people that were coming weren't people from the community, but were churches from two and three states away. Not only that, out of 30,000 people, every one of whom received a contact card, you know how many contacts of people who said, I want to know something about Jesus or your church, they got back? Five. So they prayerfully looked at it and said, Lord, it seems like this is a bad steward of our money, and, and this, while it's a wonderful thing that you have used, it doesn't seem to be effective in helping us reach our community anymore. And some people went, great, let's follow the Lord. And some people went, you're committing the unpardonable sin. Same thing with buildings. 
Sometimes a church builds a new building. Sometimes a church tears down a building. Some, this same church had 12 city blocks of buildings that were $37 million in deferred maintenance just to get it to a basic standard. That's not even improvements. The middle school boy's bathroom had brown water out of the tap. And so they had to go, what do we do with this? Here's my point, church family, is that if we're going to embrace the word of God, we have to embrace all of it, which means we have to stand where we should stand in light of the opposition of culture. It also means, and you heard me give the example Sunday, if something happens between now and Sunday and we lose all of our property, First Baptist Church Pflugerville does not cease to exist because these buildings are not First Baptist Church Pflugerville. They are wonderful blessings of God to allow us to have a place with comfortable seats and air conditioning out of the rain and out of the heat for we can worship and do ministry. We praise the Lord for his gifts. But if we have to meet in a cave or in a, in a, in a sunflower field, we will still be First Baptist Church Pflugerville because First Baptist Church Pflugerville are the people of God, not the buildings they use. And that's a biblical reality that we have to be just as committed to as we are to standing where God stands on human sexuality and abortion and other hot topic cultural issues. So here's simply uh, what, what in, in terms of seeing this chapter, because this is going to set up chapter 11 where the two witnesses enter. Here's the reality, and we'll see this next week looking at the witnesses. God never leaves this world without his witness. God never leaves this world without his witness. Today, I don't know if the end times are about to come or not. Certainly a lot of stuff hints and looks like it, but here is the reality. Right now, you know who God's witness is in this world? Us. And if we're gonna be his witness, the only way we will successfully and faithfully be his witness is to eat his word, which is sweet as honey and bitter to the stomach. And by the way, we be his witness, not by our own strength, because in the next chapter, he'll call his witnesses. He'll, he'll give an Old Testament reference that takes you back to Zechariah, where the power of the witness is not in their strength, because it says, not by my strength or my power, but by your might and the Spirit of God. We're his witnesses by the power, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to be his witnesses, well, church family, today and until he returns, which is my prayer for our church that the only way this church ceases to exist is either there's a pre-trib rapture and we're all taken or he returns and we're all taken. Basically, my point is I don't ever want to see this church die. But this church always living is faithful witnesses and part of the key to being faithful witnesses is to heed the call of God no matter what our age is, to heed the call of God as those saved by grace through faith, to take and eat of his word, which is sweet to the Sweet as honey to the mouth and bitter to the stomach. That's our call. And we've got to be clear on what that is. And that's going to simply mean we've got to humbly come to the word and let the word, the Lord shape us at his word uh, very, very clearly. And, and, and again, I'm not hinting. I bring up, when I bring up, I try to bring up stuff that I know is somewhat church world controversial because I know how tempting it is for me to make idols of things that are my memories and preferences. I'm not immune from that as a pastor. And if I'm not, I mean, none of us are immune. I've been in good churches. I've actually, I've, I really have had the privilege to be in good churches all my life. I really have, and I praise the Lord for that. And even in really good churches, none of us are above having idols. And so we just, we gotta eat. We can idolize the world's uh, allure and acceptance and compromise on truth. We can also idolize our will for our church and, compromise what God wants to do. Listen, sometimes God opposes churches not because it's spiritual warfare, but because they're trying to walk down a path in his name he doesn't want them to walk down. Because his plans are always better. I knew a church that needed, needed to save money and they realized they spent five figures on paper every year and so they said this is gonna be crazy, but we're gonna get rid of all paper bulletins. Not because we hate paper bulletins, but because literally we can't afford them. And now they're a church that has raised a million dollars to build water wells in addition to what they give to missionaries every year on top of their church budget. My point is, is we've got to be willing to follow Jesus in our own personal lives and then as a church. We will never follow Jesus as a church that way if we're not following Jesus that way in our own lives. So 
Anyways, my mind is slightly fried now, and I need to not ramble and give you stuff that's there, but the simple point is, God has called us to be witnesses. We'll see this further as we move forward, and the core of that witness is we've got to take him at his word and understand it's sweet. It is sweet to submit to him at his word. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your sweetness and your goodness. Father, the reality is it does look like things around this world are moving in some very obvious ways to set up some of the stuff you say must take place right before you return. And Father, it behooves us to not hear at what could be the end to be distracted by lesser things. Instead, it behooves us to in humble, loving adoration and submission eat your word exactly how it is, to rejoice in the sweetness of its taste, to be faithful in the midst of the bitterness of its proclamation in a world as we long for the day when, Lord, it won't be sweet and bitter. It'll just be sweet because we'll be with you for all eternity and there will be no more brokenness. Lord, may we be faithful. There is not, it should be obvious to all of us in you, Lord, there is not time to waste. And Lord, you don't call any one of us to be a hero. Not one of us are heroes. Jesus, you're the hero and you're the only one. You call us to be faithful. You empower us to be faithful. You reward us for being faithful. It's wild that it is that simple. So Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts. May we eat your word. May we delight in you at your word. And may we follow you, Lord. We praise you for what you're doing. Lord, thank you for such a wonderful church family where your love is palpable, where we do experience your fellowship. And Lord, may it always be. May First Baptist Church Pflugerville persevere until you return in whatever timing that may be. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.